you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Psalm 90. Psalm in chapter 90. Since about November, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke. We're going to pause that uh, for the month of July uh, for our fourth annual Summer in Psalms. And I mentioned last week that uh, what we try to do in our Summer in Psalms, we don't go through the order of the Psalms. We pick a different genre every week, and we try to cover as many genres as we can in that month's span. So um, we also, we're going to read it. I'm, of course, going to preach it. Then we're going to pray it, and then we're going to sing it. And so we'll do that every week uh, this month. And so we'll start with Psalm 90, which is a lament, okay? I'll be reading out of the uh, New American Standard uh, Bible. Uh, it'll be on the screen behind me as well for you to follow along there. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's go ahead and read this together. Psalm and chapter 90. God's word says, Prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. For the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world. Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust, and you say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood, they fall asleep. In the morning they're all like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew, toward evening it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger, by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury, we have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? Be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness. We may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you've afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. And confirm for us the work of your, our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Amen. This is God's word. And may God write eternal truths <clears throat> on all of our hearts. Should we miss church graveyards? This is a question Dr. Russell Moore asked in a post from 2016. And I want you to listen to what he says. He says, drive by your local booming suburban church or the up-and-coming congregation everyone's talking about in your community. You might find a state-of-the-art children's complex. You might find a family life center, previously known as a gym, with a basketball court, foosball tables, maybe even an Olympic-sized pool. You almost certainly find a feeding hall, perhaps with a franchise gourmet chef kiosk nearby. What you will not find is a graveyard. Not many churches have cemeteries anymore. In some ways, that's a good thing. Churches that are growing and evangelistic rightly conclude that sharing the gospel with the living is more important than remembering the dead. But still, says Moore, 
I wonder if we're losing something by outsourcing the care of our dead to the funeral industry. Did we lose something important, maybe even something biblical, when we paved over our graveyards? The church graveyard might serve to remind us of something that we as contemporary evangelical Christians, with all of our flash and verve, seem to forget too often these days. We're going to die. Moore brings up important points that we may rarely, if ever, really consider. I mean, how often do churches build new buildings and ask, where are we going to put the graveyard? We as a culture already want to banish the thought of death, what with our obsession with health and cosmetics and photo filters, and sadly, the church seems to be complicit in this banishment. Consider another aspect of modern Christian uh, Christendom, music. The psalm we consider today is a song that was intended for corporate worship, and it's a lament. It's a complaint about death and exile and wondering if God is going to do something about it. And this, of course, is the only lament of the Psalter. In fact, lament is the most frequent genre in the book of Psalm. And this was Israel and Jesus' hymn book. Yet lament has been all but absent from Christian music from the last several decades. I mean, what is the tagline of the most popular Christian radio station in America? It's positive, and it's encouraging. If they suddenly started playing a song that talked about how we're all going to die, you could imagine they'd get plenty of social media posts and phone calls wondering why they're being such a bummer. Several years ago, Carl Truman wrote an excellent piece on this very topic that I encourage you to go look up. It's called, What Can, what Can Miserable Christians Sing? And he says, in part, yet the human condition is a poor one, and Christians who are aware of the deceitfulness of the human heart and are looking for a better country should know this. A diet of unremittingly jolly choruses and hymns inevitably creates an unrealistic horizon of expectation which sees the normative Christian life as one long triumphalist street party, a theologically incorrect and a pastorally disastrous scenario in a world of broken individuals. You and I both know life is hard, right? It can be dark, can it? The Bible knows this too, which is why we have in the Psalter songs that match every season of life. No matter where you find yourself, there's a psalm to match that season. This psalm in particular confronts us with death, but it doesn't leave us merely with the remembrance that we all die someday. It is honest about the transience of life on earth, but also offers us hope, and it points us to the gospel. Indeed, I would go as far to say that the basic outline of this psalm is the basic outline of redemption history, and even the gospel itself. So this is the outline we'll be working with this morning, and I'll give it to you straight away, okay? Number one, God. Number two, man. Number three, grace. So not the outline of the gospel? One, man, one God, two man, three grace. Now, before we dive into these points, I need to give you some background. Okay, First, among the background info you need is to notice in your Bible that above the title of the psalm, it says book four. Do you see that? Book, somewhere above Psalm 90, it'll say book four. What's that about? You see, the Psalter is divided into five books, okay, and the psalm 
this psalm is the one that begins the fourth one. The Psalter, you understand, is not merely a collection of 150 isolated songs and prayers that have very little to do with one another. The Psalms are arranged purposefully and are interconnected, okay? So Psalm 90 comes right after Psalm 89. Psalm 89 leads into Psalm 90 because Psalm 89, which of course is the last book of uh, the book three, last chapter of book three, is another communal lament that remembers the Davidic covenant. So if you look up at your Psalm 89, you see the basic gist, right? It remembers the Davidic covenant that God made with David, which was to, that there would be a, a somebody from David's line always on the throne of Israel. And it reminds them of Israel dwelling in the land of promise. But why lament this? This is important, okay? Because it seems in their present state, in Psalm 89, that the promise is failing. The people are in exile, and their king is not on the throne. So they are neither in the land of promise nor under the king of promise. So they want to know, what in the world is God doing? Is the Davidic covenant over? Will they ever get back home? Now, second background info, again, look down at your text. It's in the heading. What's it say? A prayer of Moses, the man of God. This is the only psalm written by Moses, which means it's likely the oldest in the Psalter. But Moses is long dead, isn't he? So why would they place a psalm by him after the psalm about their exile and troubles? It's because they're applying Moses' psalm that was likely written after the golden calf incident in Exodus to their present trouble. They believe that as Moses prayed when the covenant was threatened to break up because of man's sins, that their situation was similar. They also believe that Moses' prayers were especially efficacious because he's the man of God. Isn't that what it says? The only one with this title. And it seemed any time he would intervene for Israel, God would relent, and they want that again. But the psalm is not just for people in exile, it's for us too. So let's work through this and see what the Lord has for us. So we know what our outline is. First, God. Moses begins by recounting the greatness and transcendence of God, which will be especially noteworthy in our second point, because there he'll take great pains to contrast how man is frail and feeble and transient by comparison to this great God, something that man often forgets. God has been, you look at your text, the hiding place, the shelter, the dwelling place of the people from generation to generation. As long as man has existed, God has had a people who took refuge in him. And you can see why, right? Verse 2, before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, you were from everlasting to everlasting, or you were from age to age. Another translation I especially like says, you are from forever to forever. God has no beginning. He has no end. He has always existed from age to age, from everlasting to everlasting. God has been God. When Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, it is telling us that before time itself, God was there. Everything has a beginning. Angels, demons, people, the stars, planets, galaxies, except for God. 
He is from forever to forever. Moses looks over at the mountains, the most solid and old thing in creation that he can think of, and what does he say about them? Before they were born, God was there, and he was and is eternally God. Mountains which seem ancient to us are new to God who exists from eternity. Now, this is a hard truth for us to understand because you and I, we're bound by time, aren't we? We can't fathom a timeless existence. We know that there was a time when we were not. There was a point when you and I did not exist, and we are presently bound by the seconds, minutes, hours, months, and years. When time passes for us, we have lost those moments forever. We can't go back. We cannot alter what has been done. It's gone. Neither can we slow time down or make it quicker. You have had moments you wish you could go and get back, yes? You did something embarrassing. You said something you regret. You wish you would have done things different, but there's nothing you can do. All you can do is wish. Similarly, you had moments that felt like time stood still or slowed down, and you wish it would move quicker, maybe like this sermon, but there was nothing you could do. You're trapped. But God has no such restrictions. He is not bound by time. In fact, he exists outside of time. Before there was time, God was there. The Trinity existed in eternity's past and had no needs or restrictions. God was self-sufficient and perfect. He relies on nothing and no one. But out of the abundance of his love, verse 2, he birthed all things into the galaxies. Do you see how it phrases that? That does not mean that God literally gave birth to mountains and galaxies. Rather, Moses is stressing for us God's intimate involvement with his creation. Like a mother and her dear child. You see, in many other religions, and even in how many professing Christians might view God, the deity kind of, it creates, and it just kind of sets things in motion, and it kind of, Hands off. That, that's the deity that some people worship. Sometimes you'll, you'll hear God compared to a watchmaker with the idea that if you found a watch in the forest and with all of its intricate pieces and its precise timekeeping, that you would conclude what? It's a watchmaker, right? And that's a good argument for creation, but it breaks down when you consider a watchmaker in reality will create and build and be deeply involved with making the watch, but at some point he must release control of it to someone else or walk away from it, allowing it to tick away on its own. But now contrast that to a woman who carries a child and endures labor. A mother feels the movements and the kicking and the punching of the child. She spends nine months with the baby before giving birth, and then it's not like the work is over. She continues to be, yes, intimately involved with the child for the rest of his or her days out of love and care. In other words, the mother has a connection with her child that no one else on earth has. While God did not leave the world gestating, nor did it cause him pain to bring creation about, the truth that is being relayed to us is that God is intimately involved with his creation down to the last molecule. He cares for it. He loves it. Friend, be amazed by this God. See that this is a God 
worthy of your ceaseless adoration and worship and praise. He's a God worthy of your full devotion and attention, is he not? He is from eternity to eternity. He existed perfectly and completely before time began. He needed no one and nothing. He was and is self-sufficient, and yet he chose to create and share the love found in the Trinity with his creation, and thus he is anything but hands off. And that's good news. Because a God like this can be a place of, verse 1, refuge. He could be a safe place for us to hide. He is all-powerful, for he alone can create from nothing. He is unchanging. He is perfect. He is holy. He's outside of time. We are dependent on him, for he alone is creator and sustainer of all things. The fact that he is intimately involved in his creation means he is actually glad to be a safe haven for his people. Moses saying, and Israel is saying through Moses, God, you have been a dwelling place for generations. Be that again for us. Now, once you begin to understand the eternality of God, Moses wants you to contrast God's transcendence with human frailty in the next section, which is the bulk of the psalm. So this is point two. Man, Moses doesn't even ease us into the remainder and the reminder of human frailty, does it? Look what verse three says. What's he call man? Dust, reminding us that whereas God has no beginning and has existed forever and ever, man had a beginning and his beginning started with God creating him from the ground. And this harkens us back again to Genesis when God formed man from the ground, from dust in 2.7. And then Ted verses later warns him not to transgress God's statutes or he would die. Then you know the rest of the story. In 3.19, after man transgressed God, he was told, Dust you are, and dust you will what? Return. What it says, all people die. God is sovereign over all their deaths. We all die, and on top of that, our lives are short. That's what he says. For God, verse 4, a thousand years is like a fraction of a night. See, he doesn't account time the way we do because he's not bound by it. A thousand years to him is nothing. Well, for us, a thousand years is a giant chunk of time. Empires rise and they fall. Nations rage. Generation after generation comes and it goes. A lot happens in a thousand years, right? To us, because we are frail and small and transient and bound by time, but God is not, so he sees things differently. Let's use a ready-made example. Tomorrow is what? Fourth of July, a celebration of the signed Declaration of Independence and the birth of our nation. You realize this is not even 250 years ago. You realize this? <laughs> not even 250 years ago. It seems like to us, George Washington lived a long, long, long time ago. To us, 250 years is a lot. But if a thousand years, do you see, is like a fraction of a night to God, what's 250 years? It's nothing. Moses piles on, though, doesn't he? He says, not only are we bound by time, retaining no control over its passing, our lives are brief, like a passing dream, a blade of grass, and are swept away like a flood. See what he says in verses 9 and 10? When we die, 
our life ends like a sigh. We don't go out in a blaze of glory. We fade out like a battery. And even if we're to live, then you see what he says? 70 or 80 years will eventually be forgotten. And it will be as if you were never here at all. Think of the pictures he uses. Think of a flood. You've seen floods. A flood could pick up a car or house and take it away like it's no problem and it's just gone. Think of a dream. You have dreams all the time, right? Yet you wake up, you don't remember any of it. That's your life. (laughs) Or, says Moses, think of grass. It grows up, it sprouts anew, it appears to be flourishing, then you take out your lawnmower, and what? It's like it never appeared at all. Let's keep the the 4th of July theme going, okay? How many of you are going to go see fireworks today or tomorrow, or shoot them off yourself? The fireworks show might be spectacular, Yes, it might be impressive for the moment, you ooze and ahs and all that jazz. But once it explodes and fades, <laughs> it's gone forever. It's like it never appeared at all. You might like, you look at the sky and what? It's just black. It's like it was never there. All that might remain is the smell. <laughs> but even that fades shortly thereafter, that's what our life is like. It appears for a little while, then it's gone. And what remains? Life is that short and frail in the scope of eternity. So the question begs to be asked, are we living with the end in view? Are we living... See, I'm not breaking any... I haven't broken any news to you today. You knew you were going to die, yeah? You know life is short. We say it all the time. So are we living with the end in view? What are we doing with that information? Are we living as if we know time passes quickly? Are we living for things of earth that also pass away like a sigh or a dream or a blade of grass or that which will last forever? We say all the time, we can't believe where the time went. You've said this, haven't you? I can't believe where the time went. How did they grow up so fast? But are those trite sayings, or are we living as if we know how short time is? Worrying about things like our legacy seems silly in light of what Moses says here. But, but we do worry about that sort of thing, don't we? What will our legacy be? What will we leave behind? How will people remember us? What mark will I leave? You know what the psalmist says to that? What are you worried about that for? Eventually, no one will remember you at all. That's bleak. That's reality, is it not? You know, a few years ago, I came across an interview with comedian Conan O'Brien that he did with Vice, and he said something pretty profound. He said that, eventually, all our graves go unattended. That's a grim thought, isn't it? But is he right? He said, Calvin Coolidge was a pretty popular president. He says, I've been to his grave in Vermont. It has a presidential seal on it. Nobody was there. O'Brien said early in his career, he was talking to Albert Brooks, and Brooks told him in 1940, people said Clark Gable was the face of the 20th century. Who in the world thinks about Clark Gable now? When was the last time you thought about Clark Gable? You think more personally. Think of your family. I bet you know your grandpa's name. And maybe his dad's name, and maybe 
his dad's name. But I bet for most of you, you don't know who your great-great-grandpa was or what he did. This man's blood courses through your veins. He's literally your kin. You wouldn't exist without him, and you don't know him. He's just gone. It's like he never existed. No one visits his tombstone anymore. And Moses is stressing for us the brevity of life, not to be a bummer, but because he wants us to not just say life is short as an empty and trite phrase. We pair it and then move on. But so that we would instead reckon with that truth and reckon with it often. Our society, yes, does everything it can to deny the reality that death is coming for us all. You agree with that? Health regimens, diets, plastic surgery, clothing and cars and relationships and more. Why do men and women throw long marriages away to be with someone younger? Because they want to feel young again. They want to try to counteract the creeping crow's feet and the multiplying gray hairs for their short-term pulse racing of unabashed sin. And if it causes the pain of others, so be it. Whatever it takes to bandage over the fact that we'll all die and that life is frail like dust. Anything to retain a feeling of control over life that we never had to begin with. Think about funerals. We don't have those anymore, do we? We have funerals anymore? We have celebrations of life. And that we have instead? We have funerals. We used to have funerals. <laughs> we used to use the word funeral. And we used to use funeral, and they're confronting us with death in the room to consider our own transience. Now what do we do? We hurriedly tell funny anecdotes, and then we feel pressed to move on. Bill Mooney wrote of this, even though modern cheerful funerals can be hugely touching and beautiful, a part of me wonders whether they show how petrified people are of death and of the long agony of bereavement. But no matter what we try to do, we die. Even a long life is a short one, says Moses. Especially in light of who God is in his eternality. Even people who spend their time and energy, you know this, being fit and healthy can die at any moment. And again, Moses isn't telling us this, and I'm not telling us this to get us depressed or to make us conclude that life hardly seems worth living. The fact that life is short does not mean that it isn't valuable. In fact, the fact that life is short should stress to us its value and that there's no time to waste. But what Moses wants you to do is remember that you have very little time, but then he wants you to be wise. You see, how can you be wise? Verse 12 tells us, doesn't it? Number your days. Friend, do you number your days? Do you remember that your life is frail and short, but it rests in the hands of a God who is strong and from forever? Do you live like your life is a vapor, a mist, a puff of smoke that appears for a little while and then it's gone? Do you try to cover over the fact that you are not in control, that you have little time and that things will pass away, or do you live numbering your days and living in light of eternity? Do you live for just this life or just for the next year or the next 10 or the next 30 or the next 10,000? 
Mom and dad, let me ask you a question. Grandpa, grandma, do you teach your kids and grandkids to number their days? See, that's where wisdom is found, isn't it? The wise person numbers their days. The fool is the one who rarely recalls the brevity of life. Are you teaching your kids and your grandkids to be great athletes and students and ensuring they have great experiences, but not teaching them to number their days? If so, what are you actually accomplishing? No one is saying those are bad things, but if they are great athletes and students or successful in business, what will that get them if they never learned to number their days? You can't teach them what you don't know, right? So do you, friend, number your days? Do you frequently remember that life is short and ends like a sigh, which means there is not much time to lose? in order to have an impact on the eternal. Russell Moore ends the article I mentioned in the beginning like this, and I think this is sound advice. He says, when you get a moment, find an old church graveyard and walk through it. Not for the goosebumps or the ghost stories, of course, but to remind yourself of some matters of eternal weight. Walk about and see the headstones weathered and ground down by the elements, Contemplate the fact that beneath your feet are men and women who once had youthful skin and quick steps and hectic calendars, but who are now piles of forgotten bones. Think about the fact that the scattered teeth in the earth below you once sang hymns of hope. Maybe when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there, or when we all get to heaven. It says they are silent now, but they will sing again. They will preach again. They will testify again. I think there's a beautiful twin truth there, isn't there? Life is short, yes, and we all die, yes, but is it hopeless in light of living for the eternal? Why do we die? Does God force us to live short lives full of trouble because he's like a capricious God playing cruel tricks on us poor humans? Is that why we die? I think of what C.S. Lewis said in his uh, great, what he said his greatest work was, his last work of fiction was a novel called Till We Have Faces. In that book, the main character's name is O'Rule, and she hates the gods. She hates them. She gets a glimpse of their dwelling place. It's on this mountain, and it's sort of a palatial mansion. She thinks the gods tantalize humans with riddles and mockery, refuse to speak to them plainly, like they're playing a sort of trick on them for fun, as if they get some kind of joy out of the suffering of people. Is that how God is? Is that why he makes us die and endure these short lives that vanish like a sigh? Well, that's not it. And Moses tells us why, he, why we die. We die because the God who is from everlasting to everlasting is perfect and holy and just. Man who was taken from dust has rebelled against his creator. Look again at verse 7. We have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath, we have been terrified. Verse 8 tells us why God is angry and why his wrath is aimed at humans. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your face. Death entered the world because of sin. Understand, do you know this? Man was not intended to die. You know that? You know, we say death is natural, that's a lie. Death is unnatural. Man was to be eternally enjoying the presence of God on earth, but then sin entered. 
And man rebelled against his creator. So judgment results from rebellions, and it should, yes? Man rebelled against God. If you understand what we talked about in our first point, that God is everlasting and eternal and holy and pure and loving and just and glorious and creator, that we shouldn't see sin as anything less than cosmic treason, which is what it is. We have thus inherited the sin nature of our first parents, and on top of that, we rebel, don't we? Just fine on our own. That's why there's death. That's why life is hard. Even your secret sins, even the sins only you know about, you cannot hide from this God. He even knows the sins of your heart and mind. They are, says the psalmist, literally illumined by his face. All is open and laid bare before him. So friends, we must not reduce sin down to anything less than what it is. We must not excuse away our sin as a mere mistake or accident or brush it away as innocent because we think we have the right motives. We must answer the question of verse 11, which is essentially this. Have we understood and fully reckoned with the strength of God's wrath and that death is the just deserts of our rebellion against him? Because we did we'd have a proper fear of the Lord. That's what Moses thinks. He's saying we should fear God and we should fear Him far more than we do. We should fear Him with a holy and reverent fear that knows that He is well within His rights to crush us forever. That's simply justice, isn't it? We rebelled against the holy God. What else is He supposed to do? Do we think we deserve anything but his wrath when we spurn his love and his law? Now, I'm reminded of an interaction the late R.C. Sproul had. And he was at some conference. He was on this panel, and the students were able to ask questions of him. And this is the question that was asked of R.C. Sproul. He said, since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when Adam first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? That was the question. The sprawl was like flabbergasted. He couldn't believe the question. He, he couldn't believe what this man said. He said, this is how he responded to that question. He said, this creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God after God had told him that on the day that they ate forbidden fruit, they would surely die. And instead of dying that day, God clothed him in his nakedness and declared that the serpent's head would be crushed by the seed of the woman and the punishment was too severe. He said, what's wrong with you people? And the crowd laughed, you know, and Sproul said, I'm serious, this is what's wrong with the church today. We don't know who God is. We don't know who God is and we don't know who we are. The real question is, why wasn't it infinitely more severe? And Moses wants us to get this. He wants us to see the greatness and the otherness of God, to see that we are creatures brought forth from the dust, and we rebelled against our Creator who wanted only to bless us, but also to see that He is holy and perfectly just, which means we must see both the gravity of our sin and rebellion and that His perfect justice demands wrath. And you see the problem so far in this psalm, don't you? 
Man in his arrogance has the problem of both mortality and morality. We live in denial of both. We think both, I am not that bad, and I will live a long life and have plenty of time. To this, Moses says, that's foolish. Number your days. This is wisdom. See, all of you are bummed out right now. This is all very depressing, is it not? <clears throat> who wants to think about death and sin? It's not how you grow a church, is it? Who, who wants to be reminded they're going to die? And life is short. <clears throat> and no one will remember you. And you deserve it because you're a sinner. No one. But you need to hear it because that's the reality of life. But see, you aren't supposed to take that information and become like a sad sack who believes life is meaningless. You're supposed to take stock of these realities and then go back to verse 1. That's what you're supposed to do. That's what Moses is after. He wants you to see all these realities and run and hide in the shelter of God. For God to be your dwelling place. For God to be your home. That's the proper fear of verse 11. That should come from all these realizations to run to God. Michael Reeves, in his excellent book, Rejoice in Trouble, describes this kind of fear like this. He said, we do not love God aright if our love is not a trembling, overwhelmed, and fearful love. In a sense, the trembling fear of God is a way of speaking about the intensity of the saint's love for and enjoyment of all that God is. Right fear does not stand in tension with love for God. Right fear falls on its face before the Lord, but it falls leaning toward the Lord. It says the biblical theme of the fear of God shows us that God does not want passionless performance or a vague preference for Him. To encounter the living, holy, and all-gracious God truly means that we cannot contain ourselves. And so there's good news here. Are you ready? Because point number three, there's grace. There's grace. Notice there are five petitions in verses 12 through 17. God, will you teach us wisdom so that we can properly number our days and thus see sin for the destruction it is and flee from it and use our time for eternity and hide in the shelter of your wings and rest in you? Will you return? Will you relent of the destruction that we deserve? Will you have compassion on us and our dust-like life? Will you be our satisfaction because nothing in life is doing the trick? Because we were made to find rest only in you. Will you make us glad even in the days of affliction because we see you are our dwelling place and no matter where we are or what we're facing, we're safely home because you're with us. Will you be our strength and give us favor, cause our work to be work for you and your kingdom? The reminder here, as the people face exile, and a seem, seeming end to the covenant is that joy is found in the Lord who is full of loving kindness and who will be, by no means go back on his covenantal promise regardless of how things seem. And now here's where, are you with me still? Here's where all our hearts should race and our bones quiver and our blood pump and our joy be endless. Are you ready? You guys ready? The God of verse 2 who is from forevermore to forevermore, from everlasting, from everlasting, from age to age, the God who bore the mountains and gave birth to the galaxies, the God who is perfectly sufficient and holy and just and all-knowing and all-powerful and ever-present, the God who reckons a thousand years as a fraction of a night, the God 
who is outside time, the God who made man out of dust and breathed life into his lungs. Wait, I'll make sure you get all this. Are you with me? Because now you can see this. That God entered time and became dust. Uh, do you see why? To solve both our problems with the brevity of life and that we are sinners in rebellion against our Creator who has His wrath aimed squarely at us and we are thus alienated from Him and homeless. God became dust so that He could die as we die and suffer as we suffer and weep as we weep and be tempted as we are tempted yet without sin and experience loss as we experience loss but all of that to an even greater degree because all of this wrath that you and I have stored up that Moses talks about, all the just deserts of our deeds, even the ones we committed in secret, were laid upon his perfect holy shoulders. And he drank up every last drop of God's wrath that you and I deserve. And why? So that God could be our home and dwelling place forever so that we will live eternal in his presence. So we can sing for joy and be glad all our days in this life and the next. So we can be made glad even when the days are evil. So that our work done for the kingdom in this life will matter in a trillion years. Even if our lives are short and we're forgotten by this world. Remember, this psalm was given in light of one that came before it, in light of exile. But understand, exile is more than just banishment. It symbolized death. Not just a departure from the land, but departure from life. Therefore, return from exile is more than physically returning to the land, but pointing to resurrection and new life, re-entrance into God's dwelling place. James Hamilton says at a deeper level than the requests of Psalm 90, 13 through 17, point to nothing less than the regeneration of all things, the resurrection of God's people from the dead, and the new heavens and new earth. For God to answer to the request Moses makes here, he says, will entail God keeping all his promises. The seed of the woman bruising the serpent's head, the curse on the land rolled back, relief from painful toil, the blessing of Abraham realized, the seed of Judah, seed of David on the throne, blessing all nations with God's justice and righteousness and steadfast love and forgiveness and mercy, lavished liberally, all will sing his praise. The grace of God shines forth in all the sad realities of our short lives and our rebellious sin in the person of Jesus. The one who created man from dust became dust to bear the weight of their sin so they could be reconciled to their God forevermore. So you know what? Life will still be hard. And we're still going to die. That's just how it is because of the fall. But because of Christ, it isn't hopeless, don't you see? He's grace embodied, who bridges the gap so that we can make God our home. And so that he will make all things new. And if God is our home, we can sing for joy wherever we are.
or whatever we're facing because we know that this is not all there is. Surely you remember, of course, Lord of the Ring aficionados that you guys are. You remember from Lord of the Rings, the Return of the King, as Frodo and Sam dwell, delve ever closer to Mordor to complete their mission, the darkness it seems to be deepening the further they travel. And doesn't life feel like that sometimes? If you know the story, you know that, like all good stories, trouble lurks behind every corner for our heroes. It seems constant and unrelenting, like living in a fallen world. Well, as our travelers are weary and in need of rest, Frodo falls asleep almost immediately, but Sam is true troubled by the darkness to sleep. You've, you've surely felt this. That's too dark to sleep, whether literally or metaphorically. But then he looks up in the sky, and they're peeping among the cloud in the dark above the mountain. Sam saw a bright star twinkle for a little while. Listen to what Tolkien writes. He said, The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him for like a shaft, clear and cold. The thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Says his song in the tower had been defiance rather than hope, for then he was thinking of himself. Now for a moment, his own fate and even his master's ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles and laid himself by Frodo's side, and putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. You know, life can be dark when it's lived in a fallen world like ours, can it? There's a creator he made us and everything else. We spurned his loving hand and rebelled against him, and so we die. It's appointed for man to die and then the judgment. We're still, our lives are short like a blade of grass in the scope of eternity. Worse even still, the short life can be full of pain and hardship. Even our work that we work hard to build for ourselves pass away like a child's sandcastle on the beach when it's washed away by the next tide. It makes one want to lament. And that's why we have psalms like this. But the psalm that seems to be somewhat bleak is really soaked with hope. Moses is telling us that exile does not last forever. And that with the right mediator and our own repentance, God will, verse 13, relent. And because of his, verse 14, loving kindness, he himself became the mediator we need who would bear the wrath of God that we deserved. And so if God is our home, instead of these flimsy things of the world we look to, then we should run to him as the light that shines in the midst of the darkness, and we too can have untroubled sleep. We can number our days and allow that numbering to drive us to live in light of eternity. We can lament and we can do it honestly. Neither pretending Christianity means a long triumphal street party nor a gloomy existence mouthing nothing matters because we all die anyway. Rather, we can be authentic with our pain but not despairing because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We can live remembering the shortness of life and then leveraging it to have an impact that will last forever. Friend, if Christ is your home, that every petition in verses 12 through 17 is true for you. It has been answered. Every one of these finds their yes and amen in Jesus, so make him your home. 
you are going to die one day. That's a bummer. But it's what we deserve. And if the story ended there, that we should eat, drink, for tomorrow we die, and then there's judgment and a second death. That's what we have coming to us. But you will live forever if Jesus is your home in this life. Is he your home? If not, make him your home today. If he's been your home previously, but you've made something else your home lately, something that will not last and will fade and be forgotten, return to him. Do you see who you are before a holy God? And are you thus ruined by this lavish grace offered to you because of the loving kindness found within our triune God? See what you deserve, yes. But then see what God offers you in Christ. Then you will be wise and you will number your days and you will lament as one with hope and you will dwell with God as an exile now and as an adopted child forever to the glory of so great a God who is from forever to forever.